Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Kara English, and I am here today with my good buddy, Amanda Harrison. She is our Chief Operating Officer at Cummings Graduate Institute, and she had a great idea a long time ago, and we're finally getting around to doing it, which is have a podcast called Ask a DBH, where we take questions from the audience that are related to the role of a DBH in healthcare. So it could be questions that people wish that they could ask of a physician, but have never had the chance because their physician just didn't take enough time with them. Or it could be questions that are related to the behavioral or lifestyle influences or social influences or determinants of health. So with Amanda today, we're going to be taking a question. uh, We're going to be fielding a couple of questions that came in from our initially from our CGI team. And we're also going to be talking about just some broader, general, frequently asked questions about DBHs. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for having me. You know, it's more behind the scenes. I know. I know. We're finally doing it. It took us a while, but we're finally doing it. It's very rare for me to be out there. I know. Yeah. Amanda and I have a lot of really great conversations behind the scenes, and that's really kind of what drew her, I think, to this idea. So I'm, I'm glad we're doing it today. Well, and I think I've always just like, when we, when we chat, I always like, well, what about this? What about this? And I tend to ask you a lot of stuff that when then people ask me about what a DBH is and the degree and like why it's important, I'm able to speak to it as a non-clinical person and somebody with no medical background, Mm -hmm. um, which is, I think really beneficial. And I think also helps get the word out about like who you all are because sometimes it's still not a well-known degree. It's yeah. still it's still relatively new, even though people have been earning doctor of behavioral health degrees since around probably 2010, 2011 mm-hmm. were the first graduates of the, the first DBH program. And then CGI founded and, and started accepting students in 2015. And mm-hmm. so even though we've we've got a lot of doctors of behavioral health out there, we're still a new crew to the healthcare field. Yeah, but a very important health. Yeah. Care aspect, we so. used to say the missing link in healthcare. Yeah, for sure. So I think I'd like to just get it like very high level started. Like mm-hmm. what is a DVH? Yeah. I get asked that question a lot, especially with the letters behind my name. And um, so the way that I usually describe it is a doctor of behavioral health serves as the link between the patient and the physician when it comes to mental health and behaviors and lifestyle related factors. So for example, um, one element of, of healthcare that a lot of people don't have time or a lot of physicians don't take into account is nutrition. Um, and another is, is sleep and another is physical activity. And so, you know, just in those three topics alone, you know, I could probably spend an hour talking about each of those with a patient, but most physicians won't even address those as they relate to what's going on with a patient. So they might be recommending, let's say a person has type two diabetes or they're pre-diabetic, they'll usually put them on metformin, which is a medication to help control insulin. Um, And they'll usually have a a discussion with them initially about, you know, how to have a better diet, but there's no one who's really helping them address issues related to motivation and the cultural and familial influences that relate to the kinds of foods that we choose on a day-to-day basis. And so a DBH would be the person that we would like to see and that we're trained to be um, in a medical practice who's sort of a handoff from the physician who's making that diagnosis of type two diabetes. And then we get to meet with a patient to say, okay, let's talk about some of the changes that you can be making that can improve your overall condition that your physician, you know, wants you to start doing. And let's talk about some of the things that might get in the way of that. So we put it out there, right. At the outset, you know, motivation is a huge factor. I don't know if you've ever tried to do dieting or, you know, physical activity change. Most people have, Um, and for me, it's always a hard thing to do. Um, I continue to struggle with, you know, making healthy choices in, in food on a day-to-day basis and certainly getting enough physical activity. Mm-hmm. 
And so we talk through some of those things, um, patient to doctor behavioral health, and we talk about ways that we can maybe reduce some of the barriers for them to achieve those behavior changes. Um, and then we also talk about some of the factors like depression and anxiety that are, you know, causing some of the reasons for choosing unhealthy foods mm -hmm. or choosing not to be physically active. And again, sleep is one of them. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're not sleeping very well and you're tired all of the time, which has definitely been a factor for me, I'm a lifelong insomniac, mm -hmm. then it can really affect your ability to have the energy you need to go out and get some physical activity. So again, we talk through the challenges related to that. And we talk, we try to help patients find, um, ways that work for them mm -hmm. to improve their health from, you know, the family up, because, you know, if, if we don't have family members involved in making the change relatively few people are able to make and then sustain that mm -hmm. behavior change. So why, after a, a patient comes to you, like you're the doctor, the um, MD refers a patient to you that like has been diagnosed with diabetes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, what does it look like for that patient in terms of continual follow-up? Is it just a one-time meeting? Is it something that they're supposed to be coming back with you? Or are you yeah. then turning on having conversations with that MD about mm -hmm. what you're doing with the patient? Like, what does yeah. that look like from your perspective in terms of the integration? So from a best practices or an evidence-informed standpoint, it, there should definitely always be follow-up mm -hmm. because how rare is it that a person gets the, all of the information they need and the support that they need to manage a chronic disease in one visit. Mm -hmm. So um, in, in the situation with a person who's been diagnosed with type two diabetes, that's a new diagnosis, you know, they're coping with the news that they have a chronic disease. There's probably some grief and loss and some trauma associated with that because I bet you that there have been people in their life who have died mm -hmm. or they, they understand that it's a disease that could kill them or, or maim them. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're automatically going to want to follow up with the mental health related aspect of that. And so what I would normally do if I'm seeing a patient with a new diagnosis is I would recommend a follow-up the following week so that we can have a little bit of a longer assessment related to some of the other mental health components and the other co-occurring lifestyle or behavioral or social determinants. So, you know, how safe is your living environment? Are you able to take a walk around mm -hmm. your block in, in a safe way? Or do you live in an area that isn't safe or that wouldn't be safe during the hours that you have available and free mm -hmm. to take a walk? Um, you know, how far is it to the nearest grocery store? Does a grocery store in your area actually have fresh foods? Mm -hmm. Because we know that there are food deserts and that's a major part of people having a hard time making choices. And then, you know, what is your budget for making mm -hmm. food choices? You know, so it's really being able to look at a whole lot that a physician is never going to spend the time to go through. So I would want to do a larger assessment and then I would want to follow up with them in a cadence that works for the patient to come back and talk through, okay, what were some of the successes? And people may say, oh, I wasn't successful at all. And I'll say, really not anything changed. And they'll say, well, I did start to eat more salads. And I'll say, great. Like how many salads did you eat this past week? Well, I, instead of eating a hamburger, I ate a salad two days this week. Well, that's change, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, you want to cheer the, on the small changes because sometimes people have this black and white thinking of it's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. I either did it all or I didn't do anything. And, mm -hmm. and so, you, you know, just helping them to really reinforce their own behavioral change and cheer themselves on and then start to make more and more of those, you know, positive changes and also to help them understand that, you know, not being perfect is part of the recipe for change too, mm -hmm. because a lot of times when people fail, it's because they weren't, they didn't perceive themselves to be perfect. And so then they think, well, I'm not going to be successful at this mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. So, you know, as far as like a, a follow-up, um, it's not often with a physician, but then we can add in what we call ping pong visits, which is you come back to see me, but then you also ping pong over to see the physician if it's a question related to the medication. Mm -hmm. So for example, I might be seeing a, a patient with type two diabetes and they'll, they'll say, 
I'm noticing that my blood sugar is really, really still very hard to control, even though I've made changes in diet and physical activity and my sleep is better. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we know are related to that problem mm -hmm. of blood sugar regulation are being changed, mm -hmm. but the medication doesn't seem right. Okay. I'm going to send you back to a physician. So your PCP can talk with you about maybe that's not the right medication. Getting the right medication is huge. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do ping pong visits like that. And then sometimes we'll do a joint visit, mm -hmm. which is, you know, sometimes they'll do what's called a warm handoff where the physician is already meeting with them on a follow-up and they see in their notes that I've been meeting with them as it relates to diet change. And they'll say, Hey, I'm going to call Dr. English in here and we'll talk together about this issue. So mm -hmm. it can look a lot of different ways. And it really, what I've noticed you know, having been doing this since about 2014 as a DBH is that it kind of looks different based on the style and the preferences of the physician or the practice, as well as the preferences and the style of the patient population that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So what may look very, you know, routine in a primary care office may look very different in an OBGYN practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So are most of the times like physical issues, like body, body issues, is there always some sort of like mental aspect associated with it mm -hmm. that needs to be cured at the same time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that I don't think most people understand because we've been trained to think that, you know, mental health is a carve out, right? It's mm -hmm. something that doesn't relate to anything else, but the, but the challenge is that we know that there's no gate in our neck between the organ in our head mm -hmm. and the organs in the rest of our body. And scientifically, we know that even small things like you know, the way that you walk mm -hmm. and, you know, your husband is a physical therapist. Yeah. He can tell you that gait is incredibly important mm -hmm. to other types of, of health and how health outcomes, you know, mm -hmm. happen. Um, and so what we try to do is do a little bit of education for physicians because mm -hmm. physicians are often trained in that medical model where they're not trained to consider how a person's cognitions, their thinking mm -hmm. and their emotions or their feelings, their relationships with other people, whether it be a spouse or a partner or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or um, their children, you know, have their children's health, um, their parents, and, you know, whether they're a caregiver, the stress of their life, like how much stress they have at work, how much adverse childhood experiences or developmental trauma they had, you know, growing mm -hmm. up and how that all relates to the expression of our body in terms of health mm -hmm. or illness. It's really interesting. So if I am not feeling great. Like I'm having an ache in my stomach or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend that I always start with going to like the, like the MD side of it or start mm -hmm. going to like the, the behavioral health side of it or both at the same time? So there's a couple of things. So for ache in the stomach, that's a really great example because it's a very common thing mm -hmm. for people. So one of the first things I'm, I'm usually asking is what have you been eating mm -hmm. and have you ever taken like a food sensitivity test? Mm -hmm. Because it could be, and this actually happened to me and it's happened to a lot of people mm -hmm. that I know, um, you know, a dairy food intolerance can make a huge problem for people. And, you know, so things like dairy or egg yolks mm -hmm. that are foods that, you know, people typically consume in a Western diet on a day-to-day -day or at least week, week to week basis can cause chronic stomach aches and pains and gas and bloating and constipation and issues that people deal with that they think are purely medical. Mm -hmm. But again, it's related to that behavior and lifestyle choice of what you're eating and to the education and knowledge mm -hmm. and health literacy of how food causes, you know, different symptoms. Mm -hmm. And of course, anxiety and depression are other kinds of mental health, you know, what's considered to be a mental health or a mental illness mm -hmm. kind of um, symptom that can definitely relate to having stomach pains. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to answer your question, I always like to say, okay, let's look at all the lifestyle stuff that's going on now and see if any of it can connect, mm -hmm. can, you know, kind of give me an answer as to what's going on. Yeah. So when I feel sick, the first thing I'm looking at is my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. The first thing I'm looking at is my stress. Yeah. And so I would say that people, you know, once you know more about how to do that and you can kind of diagnose yourself as far as, you know, okay, 
let's try a dairy elimination Mm -hmm. and see if I feel better. You know, after a week without dairy, do I feel any better? Um, most of the time, yes, (laughs) for a lot of people, that's true. Um, and also, you know, how much stress do I have at work? How much work am I doing? Mm -hmm. You know, is it way over 40 hours? Am I getting any kind of relief? Is there play? Is there joy Mm -hmm. in my life? You know, how's my relationship with my spouse, partner, family, if it's very stressful, Mm -hmm. if things are not going so well, again, that can contribute to the sensation of stomach pains Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. So let's see what we can do from a lifestyle basis first. Mm -hmm. And then if it, if we can't explain it, if we can't rule out, or if we can't rule out completely what's going on from a lifestyle or behavior and environmental standpoint, let's check in with a doctor. Absolutely. You know, especially if you have healthcare, Mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's check in with a primary care doc and see if we need to do some blood tests or if we need to do, you know, some addition, if we need to see a, um, a GI specialist, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a chronic thing that you've experienced your whole life, you know, we have a, a person that we work with who's experiencing diverticulitis and, you know, some gastrointestinal uh, issues that are absolutely medical mm-hmm. that need um, treatment. So we don't want anybody to be going without treatment if it's a pattern and it's, if it's a chronic symptom over time, you know, that can't be addressed mm-hmm. from the lifestyle perspective. Right. That makes sense. So I go to you and I'm telling you my stomach hurts and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this way. And you're like, okay, let's eliminate dairy or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I tell you I'm eliminating it, but I don't. Yeah. Like, how do you start to like, how do you deal with that? I mean, like, I know that it's not really like specific to DBHS doctors in general, right. right, Who deal like, right. And across the board, who deal with patients who aren't necessarily telling the truth, but it's like, yeah. So then what do you do at that point when it's like, calling out a patient's bullshit. Yeah. So that obviously happens. And we are, you know, just like any other physician, unless we're able to run, you know, a test, we're definitely at the mercy of what, you know, patients are telling us. So one of the things that I really like to do is I like to bring in family members Mm -hmm. because again, you know, our teammates are, you know, one of the top factors that can predict whether or not we're going to be successful in achieving and maintaining you know, sustaining Mm -hmm. behavioral change. So a lot of times what happens when I bring in, you know, spouse, partner, family member could be eldest child. They're like, nah, I'm mom. You just had ice cream last night. Yeah. It's wrapped me out all the time. I know. And, you know, in our training model, which is, you know, we refer to it, the clinical uh, training model, we call the biodyne model. One of the things that we talk about um, is, you know, if you ask the youngest member of a family, what's really going on, you're going to get the truth. Oh yeah. I just had a Ben's cousins were in town and, um, one of them was talking about how they were, she's been struggling, you know, with her weight since mm-hmm. having kids. And she's just been like stressed about it and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. She said that they were in the car and she was like, oh, I feel fat and whatever. And her son looked at her and she said, you are fat. And Yikes. like, oh God. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, there's the truth for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, I think, I think it's important to, to think about the words that we say to ourselves oh, and yeah. to others. And so like for that person, I would say, okay, so there, there actually have been a lot of really interesting scientific studies on putting rice in some water in a jar Mm -hmm. and then putting the words, I love you on the jar. Mm. And then in another jar, same jar, same amount of rice, putting the words, I hate you, or you're fat or you're, you know, very negative. And as it turns out, and, and this can be done in an experiment over the course of like 30 days, the rice in the jar with like positive words, loving words, encouraging words, and obviously the intent Mm -hmm stays pretty like it, it doesn't decay. It doesn't like mold. It doesn't get gross, but the rice in the jar of the words that we put our like mean negativity, negative self kinds of attributes or, or things that we might say to others, you know, you're lame, you're a loser, you know, Mm -hmm. I hate you, those kinds of things, it will rot. And so you know, when you think about it, our bodies are 70 plus percent water. Oh yeah. And there is certainly more that we don't understand about intention from a cognition and emotional standpoint than what we do understand. Mm -hmm. But what we know is that you can actually see the difference just in, in food, which is plant matter. And, you know, to a large extent, so are we. And so, you know, looking at, at the difference between what we think about Mm -hmm. ourselves and about others 
and how that affects even just stuff that is in water. Mm -hmm. So it's something that I would definitely have that conversation with, <laughs> with them about that. Same thing about words. Yeah. Which I should be telling myself that I'm sure my we all should this podcast and be like, um, hello. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, I, I try to talk. Adolescents have a hard time with this because, you know, in adolescence, we learn to say things about ourselves when it's cool to say those things yes. in front like of I'm such an and... idiot or things like that. And I yes. hear that from my son a lot and I stop him and I, and I say, that's not how we, you know, Hey, you're talking about my son there. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, don't bully yourself. Right. You know, I don't, I don't want anybody bullying my son. Right. And he's like, it's me, it's my voice. And I'm like, exactly. And I, <laughs> I will not allow that. So we should talk most positive about yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because, you know, it really does relate to at a psychic level, you know, yeah. a soul level, and certainly at a cellular level, the kinds of trauma that we're you know, giving to ourselves. Oh yeah. I mean, I can see it in, even in my own self. And I know like we've talked about wanting to do different podcasts of these like acid EBH with different themes. And mm -hmm. so you're just listening to one of them that I definitely want to do is like a, like weight and nutrition and mm -hmm. health one, because mm -hmm. that's something that I personally struggle with all the time. And like the thoughts around my body. And I know mm -hmm. like when I'm going through a low point in time of thinking about my body, it's mm -hmm. like, I see how I carry that and the, oh, yeah. the world and then mm -hmm. how I don't want to do things. Yep. And I start to like recluse myself and yep. typically can talk myself out of it and yeah. go for a long walk or do things that are positive to yeah. make myself feel better. Mm -hmm. But I also know that I have like, an advantage by working with all of you and knowing like what you have always told me, like when you're not feeling good, you should get outside and go for a walk. And now right. walking a mile or two miles every day for me is like a necessity. It's something oh, yeah. I do mm -hmm. all the time. And I absolutely agree. And that's something, you know, cause my primary clinical population is working with moms who, you know, pregnant and postpartum moms. And that's one of the things that I'll say, if you can even get a walk of 10 minutes, mm -hmm. it, it really can change, you know, the, the kinds of perspective and the level of stress that you have. Okay. Sometimes it takes, you know, it's so there's so much anxiety bound up in, I don't want to leave. I don't want to put the shoes on. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take that first step. But most people after they've taken like even two, three steps, steps outside the door, suddenly they're like, Oh, I could keep going. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, the other thing is just being in the presence of nature, being in connection mm -hmm. with nature. So even if it's something like seeing the little aloe plants, you know, mm -hmm. growing along the side of the, of the road or, you know, any of the, you know, we live here in the desert in Phoenix. And so there, there are a lot of, you know, little wildflowers that are going to be growing this spring. Mm -hmm. And everybody talks about how beautiful wildflower season is. And that, also so relates to an uplifted mindset. Oh yeah. So it can do a lot. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think too, like just, just this idea of like with the going off of the mom thing, it's like, I know that when I'm like, oh, I need to get out of the house. I'm ready to strangle my children, which is mm -hmm. a pretty frequent thought in my head. <laughs> they're small. <laughs> they're small. So yeah. It's, it's funny how much a 10 minute walk can make me miss them Oh yeah. to then be excited to walk through the door yeah. and in reverse the same mm -hmm. for them, like mm -hmm. where I can tell they've had a rough night. And when I walk back through the door or whatever, mm -hmm. like my son Henry will be like, mom. It's like he had seen me for the first time that day, even uh -huh. though like 10 minutes before he was losing his <laughs> shit. In <time> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. That's, that's a really good point. And I, I think, you know, it is hard for me sometimes to mm -hmm. get the shoes on and just get out the door. Mm -hmm. But once I take those first few steps, it's like that deep breath that my mm -hmm. mind really needed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. So, okay. Back to like, what's a DBH. So at the end of the day, like, where do you see the value or what's the value add of a DBH for a person? Mm -hmm. For anybody who's, you know, trying to be as healthy as they can, because, you know, our system is not, a, not set up for health. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that, you know, we have prevention visits, but they're really set up to, you know, identify illness. Well, yeah, they're I mean, not set up. Women's visit, and I was asking her about some issues I was having that were women related. And yeah. she's like, well, that's a, a well visit. Not right. A, 
So I can't even talk to you about wellness. You're already down there. Can't you just take a look quick or whatever? It drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. So I totally get what you're saying about. Yeah. So I think, you know, the value of, of having a DBH would be to me, you know, that a DBH could be part of every wellness visit, you know, Mm -hmm. every annual physical. Um, And in fact, we have a partnership with a a firehouse, um, Rio Rancho Fire and Rescue Department in just outside of Albuquerque, New Mm -hmm. Mexico. And one of the things that they started to, um, implement recently because firefighters are at such a higher risk due to event trauma um, as part of their day-to-day job. They're at much higher risk for depression and suicide. And so one of the things that they decided to implement was they they already, all firehouses will do an annual physical checkup and they decided to add, they, they brought a fire, a, a, um, psychologist on board who does during their physical annual physical, he does that, um, an annual mental health checkup. Mm. And I don't know why we don't do that other than the fact that our system just hasn't been set up to do it. Exactly. So it easily could be part of it. Um, because there's, there's really nothing other than, you know, generally, um, in, in the way that we physicians bill for the annual Mm -hmm. visit. There are certain things that, you know, certain kinds of biological, you know, metrics that are required, Mm -hmm. you know, so they, they're going to take your heart rate. They're going to take your blood pressure. You know, they're going to take your temperature, you know, they're going to take your weight. Um, so, you know, those are the kinds of things that we measure, but what do they really mean? You know, well, Mm -hmm. that's part of the system of care that's been, you know, said, well, this is evidence-based care because if, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, um, your temperature and your weight are off, then, you know, we're going to do some health coaching, Mm -hmm. but there's so much beyond that. You know, um, some physicians are now using like a, what they call a, um, PHQ nine, which is a patient health questionnaire that asks nine questions about, you know, the level of depression mm-hmm. that a person has in their life, including whether or not they've had any thoughts of self-harm lately. And, um, so that's one way, but the challenge often is that physicians don't really talk with their patients about it. They do it as a checkbox, mm-hmm. um, so that they're meeting, you know, quality standards. But I have heard many, many, many patients tell me that they've filled out that questionnaire and no one even talked to, the, to them about it. Out, like, like, I need help. Right. And it can be a huge ethical issue. Um, the other issue is that, you know, oftentimes, especially with new moms, they will oh under report. We had to, yeah, mm-hmm. we had to fill out when we take the kids in. Yeah. First of all, it was a pain in the butt to have to fill out those like while trying to mm-hmm. hold a baby. But mm-hmm. then I never wanted to write how I was actually feeling because no. I thought oh, most God, moms would be the biggest failure, even though I knew right. I wasn't failing and mm-hmm. I knew I was doing a great job. But yeah, I there were points where I was drowning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I don't want to tell anybody. I, well, and don't I you kind of CPS is going to show up and then all yes. of a sudden now I'm in this involvement yeah. and it really wasn't that big of a deal. That is a huge, huge yes. issue for moms um, under reporting symptoms because they're super worried first and foremost about DCS involvement. And the second part of it is, and I'm going to be hundred percent honest and, and transparent with you here. I know that I know more about mental health than any physician does. Mm-hmm. So I just, I have zero trust yeah. in a physician's ability to help me with mental health, mm-hmm. especially because I know that they don't have an integrated behavioral health care worker yeah. as part of the practice. And mm-hmm. so I'm just thinking to myself, well, this is useless. That's my thought. So as a DBH, the value in being part of the practice is that we actually can have those conversations. We can do an assessment that isn't just a form. We can have a conversation with a patient about, you know, for me, I would be asking moms, okay, like how overwhelmed are you? Like, are you, you know, having any um, scary thoughts? Are you having any anxiety? Are you sleeping? Mm -hmm. You know, do you feel like you're getting enough rest? Yes, you're a new parent, but one of the biggest dismissive things to say to a new parent when they tell you that they're not getting enough sleep is, well, you're a new parent. Okay. How way to shut the conversation down. Mm-hmm. Like no chance they're going to tell you anymore about what they mean. Like how much sleep are you missing? Mm-hmm. Are you able to get that four to six hour uninterrupted, you know, sleep stretch, stretch per day for both you and your partner, Mm -hmm. you know, and if not, do you have any support or any help that we can line up to get Mm -hmm. you more rest? Because we know you can't do your best to care for yourself, not to mention your child Mm -hmm. who's completely vulnerable and dependent on you. And so those are just small, teeny tiny little ways that a DBH can make all the difference Mm -hmm. in wellness. Mm -hmm. It is health and wellness when a DBH is on board versus sick care Mm -hmm. without. Well, I think like 
like going into some of those um, appointments because they were never appointments for me. There was appointments for the kids where yeah. I had to report on how I was filling up their appointments. Yeah. And then you're like, well, this isn't my doctor. So right. they're not really here to help me. So yeah, exactly. then you're definitely worried well, about CPS. And then I'm like, okay, I don't necessarily, I know that this is temporary, that that is due to this situational thing. Right. And I don't necessarily want to go on mm-hmm. depression meds or anti-anxiety meds mm-hmm. or whatever, because I would rather try to cure it more naturally. Right. And but that, I'm, I'm all for anxiety meds, yeah. depression meds, because I know they are necessary for certain. Patients. But I think you bring up a great point, which mm-hmm. is most Americans definitely think, well, if I report depression or anxiety, I'm going to be offered medication. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have been trained, including physicians, to think that if anxiety or depression is identified, mm-hmm. the first line of intervention is medication. It's like birth control. When you go to your six-week appointment, exactly. a baby, they yeah. want they were throwing it at me at that appointment. And I was like, we're good. Yeah. And it was like, well, then what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm married. It's not your business. What we're doing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but to be like, it seems like it's always just a quick turn to a quick fix of a pill. Exactly. And does a DBH kind of prevent some of like, not prevent some of that, but like make sure that if a pill is introduced in some Uh way, Uh it's actually the right one. And not just because the pharmaceutical rep was in the office that day. Yeah. Or it's like, how do, how do you get mm-hmm. to that point with that? It's a really good point. So again, I go back to physician education mm-hmm. as a part of the role of a DBH. So in a practice, when a DB, when I'm on your team, right, as a DBH, I'm having these kinds of conversations that you and I are having with mm-hmm. the physician. Mm-hmm. So I'm, because of the nature of these conversations, it's causing the physician that I partner with to have different thoughts as they relate to how I'm assessing patients, how I am going about, it's not just a default. Oh, first line of treatment is medicine. I'm saying, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. We haven't addressed all of the things we already talked about, all of the social determinants, all of the environmental determinants, Mm -hmm. the family level, the cultural level, you know, like what else is going on? The first course of treatment does not need to be take another pill. Mm -hmm. Also, that's going to cause 12 more side effects. Are they taking any other medications and how Mm -hmm. might that interact Mm -hmm. with other, you know, so go back to the patient with type two diabetes, you know, there are a lot of studies that show that a person who is taking antipsychotic medications, which is often given as a treatment for schizophrenia, but it's Mm -hmm. also given a lot for people who have quote, treatment resistant depression. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that an antidepressant didn't work for them. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10, when I talked to the person, the reason it didn't work was because it had nothing to do with medication. It had everything to do with the circumstances of their life that needed change, not a medication that needed to be added. And so, you know, you have a couple of different problems. Antipsychotics can cause insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And so then you you have a person who has literally become type two diabetic because of the medication that they were offered. Right. So now they're having to deal with that on top of uh-huh. which even spirals them into more of a depression. Exactly. So, you know, there are a lot of great physicians out there who, you know, have a level of understanding or, you know, maybe are a little bit more resistant about giving medication first. Um, but I can tell you that the primary care, you know, physician population often is very, very busy. You know, they're working Mm -hmm. for a whole lot less than, than the average, you know, medical specialist. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're looking for volume. And so a lot of times, unfortunately, they're, like you said, looking for that quick fix, which is, you know, what medications do I know that are, you know, quote unquote, scientifically evidence-based for this particular set of symptoms instead of, so then you're just chasing symptoms you're not actually curing anything. Yeah, no, completely. And I, I get the, see as many numbers as you can. I know they're in such a tough position mm-hmm. and it's, mm-hmm. again, it's what you, the patient just tells you, you don't know the whole story. You exactly. The whole, they're not there to spend the whole hour with them. Right. How feel. Well, and again, if you're, if you know, the checklist, I highly recommend that, you know, every patient have somebody with them, you know, half the time that my husband goes in to see a physician, he has said to me many times, do you, do you maybe want to come with me? Because Mm -hmm. he knows that I can have an educated conversation with the specialist or the physician Mm -hmm. about medications versus behavior and lifestyle versus mental health. I also have, you know, a unique 
perspective mm-hmm. on what might be going on with my husband and mm-hmm. can then follow up at home. Yeah. So it's a huge help when you have a family member present and that definitely goes for people who are caregivers. Yeah, for sure. Even just that, that knowledge and support of it. I know I've been to a few appointments with my husband mm-hmm. before and he's, because he's asked to go, asked me to go mm-hmm. and not from obviously like a healthcare knowledge perspective, but just like a can you explain what you're seeing yes. perspective when he was having some of his like anxiety and depression mm-hmm. spells mm-hmm. and then that helped give the therapist like more of a whole picture of him instead Absolutely. of just viewing it from his perspective because like we can't see ourselves no you know from an objective no. lens at all and there are also you know so many people who you know i'm just i'm thinking of you know situations where initially that I thought that I was doing everything that I possibly could to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And then when I went in to see the nutritionist and the nutritionist was asking questions and it was my, myself and my husband together Mm -hmm. because we were both trying not, he was trying to reduce his cholesterol Mm -hmm. and I was trying to lose weight. And we realized that if I was able to follow more of the diet that he was going to go for and do less of the stuff that I actually, I, I thought the things that I was eating were healthy. Yeah. They were actually contributing to weight maintenance and, and increase rather than weight loss. And so it was a nutritional education. It was a lack of health literacy mm-hmm. for, it was a lack of nutritional literacy for me. And that came to light because of that conversation with my husband there at the same time. So wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I feel like today has brought many different topics that I have so many more questions about. So I think mm-hmm. we'll definitely be doing more of these. Yes. I think it's a great idea. But I feel like it was a good start of just like, what is the DPH and what's mm-hmm. the purpose of you all? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you guys are amazing, <laughs> but I work with you every day. So I see it firsthand. And so mm-hmm. with it being so new, I think it's just important that other people. Yeah hear and see what you guys are all doing as well. Yeah. We've never really taken the time on this podcast to explain Mm -hmm. what a DVH is. So this is a great idea. I'm glad we're doing it. Me too. Mm -hmm. It'll be fun. Yeah. So should we answer some of our staff questions? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So just for the listener out there, we uh, sent, I sent out an email to the CGI team, which is our um, operations team and academic team. And I encourage them to send, you know, their hot Hot questions, burning questions to to me. Yeah. So why don't doctors want patients doing their own research on WebMD or the Mayo Clinic website? What's the problem with a patient doing their own research before coming into you? Don't don't you want the patient to become better self-managed? That's a great question. And it's, you know, thank you, Lori Christensen, for this question. Um, it's definitely one that I know, you know, we can talk about. So um as I said before, my primary population is pregnant and postpartum women. And a lot of times what happens, especially with women who are trying to have a baby and are having maybe some challenges getting pregnant as soon as they would like, is that they'll go on the internet and start Googling things. And the, the harm, the potential harm there is that the internet can be a very dark place. Anyone can post anything they want. Um, you know, Wikipedia is a, is a great example of, you know, what happens when pretty much anything can be posted. Um, but that's true for a lot of people, pretty much everybody has a blog these days. Um, so, you know, and, and there are people, you know, it's kind of like the squeaky wheel that gets the grease, right? The louder they are, the more that they've said on something, the more that they set themselves up to be, you know, sort of a subject matter expert. There's a lot of, um, you know, the pandemic was a really great example of how misinformation can spread like a virus itself online and, you know, through social media. So social media um, outlets are often to blame when it comes to people getting misinformation about their health. And so, you know, the, the truth about vaccines is a big part of that. And so, you know, in the birthing community, a lot of times what we see are, are women who are really afraid to get a COVID vaccine or really afraid to get a flu vaccine. Um, or, you know, for me, for example, um, I had to get the Rogam shot because of my blood type. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can cause your blood, your blood type. If you're, um, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, if you don't get the shot, your body can, um, attack the fetus and you, and it can cause, um, a miscarriage. And so I had to get the shot. Well, I asked because I didn't want to just get a shot. 
doesn't my blood type and my husband's weigh in here? Like, yeah. you know, and, um, I just remember the OB telling me that they don't ask and they don't test the father because a lot of times in her experience, the father that the mother says is the father isn't actually the father. And I just kind of looked at her and blinked for a second because I couldn't figure out. I was like, are you saying I'm that questioning? What yeah. And she was like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's, <laughs> that's the case in this situation. And I was like, but shouldn't you at least test my husband and know what his blood type right. is? So we ended up doing that. We ended up having, you know, him getting his, his blood type done. Um, and it turned out, I still needed the shot because, you know, we we're both negative or something mm -hmm. like that. I can't recall the situation, but um, anyway, the point is there's, there's a lot of information out there about, you know, oh, you shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z because there are people who feel like, or, you know, their perception of, you know, medical interactions is from a very low place of trust. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a lot of times due to go back to the training and also, you know, the respect for the person's sovereignty over their own health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the word non-compliant has been thrown around a lot in the medical community and it's still being used mm -hmm. in a patient record um, to describe someone who, you know, does not want to follow the treatment plan that it, that is prescribed by the physician. So instead of the word non-compliant, could we, you know, maybe shift into a patient has questions and concerns about this and would like to choose this, yeah. you know, approach instead. Um, you know, the word refusing to take medication or, you know, refusal to it's accept like the treatment plan, in the office. it does, it, it yeah. makes the, it, and it's, again, it goes back to, you know, treating the patient like a child instead of a sovereign human being who, you know, you can provide information so that they can make an informed decision mm -hmm. about their body. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, I actually, when I have a conversation with a patient about doing their own research, and I have had patients who've brought misinformation to me before. Um, and I've said, you know, where did you find that information? And it, nine times out of 10, it's on Facebook. And so I'll say, I have not heard that. Could you please send it to me or could you bring it? Could you bring it into me? And nine times out of 10, when I ask for that, they decide that they don't want to bring it because they realize that it Most actually wasn't Facebook or it was coming from a, a person who, you know, isn't maybe qualified to be, mm -hmm. um, you know, giving health information. So, and I'm not trying to say that people can't have opinions or beliefs about their own health right? or that they shouldn't share that information. But I am saying that, and when we look at information online, especially on a Facebook group, mm -hmm. and we think about those things that other people are saying, and then we make those applications to our own health, mm -hmm. we sometimes miss the full picture yeah. and it, it can actually cause harm. And so I like to say, it's a really good idea to do your own research. And I encourage a lot of times when I would have conversations with individuals who we had, you know, started, you know, with the assessment of, you know, sleep and nutrition mm -hmm. and, you know, supplements. And we were looking at how much water are you taking in? You know, are you getting breaks mm -hmm. from all the work that you do and all the caregiving that you have to do? Are you getting adult time? Mm -hmm. Are you having enough laughter and joy in yeah. your life? You know, what does your neighborhood look like? Is it safe? You know, how are your relationships with your family and your community and your culture? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're doing behavioral health interventions and they're still really struggling with anxiety and, and depression. Mm -hmm. then we start to talk about, it is possible that you could benefit from a medication. Is that mm -hmm. something you're open to? That's mm -hmm. my first question, yeah. because I'm not going to sit here and tell you to take a medication or recommend that you get a prescription. If you don't want it, if it is truly your belief yeah. that you don't want to go in that direction, mm -hmm. I will accept that hundred days out of hundred. Mm -hmm. And so what it, what it does is it says, okay, this is you, I want to give you all of the information you need. And so some people will say, I want to think about it. So I'll say, great, I'll give you some information. And I encourage you to go and look up some information on your own, mm -hmm. bring it back to the next you know, appointment. Mm -hmm. We'll talk through it. And then you can let me know what you'd like to do or how you think you'd like to proceed yeah. with care. Because again, I want the patient to be the person who is well, in charge of their health. It'd be nice to see the whole picture of the different options and then mm -hmm. me get to make the option. Yes. But then also make the option and come back and say, that didn't actually work for mm -hmm. me. Can we try this route this time or yeah. whatever? And yeah. have that, that open care 
Yeah, because, you know, there's so much that we can do outside of just adding a medication. There's mm-hmm. so, so much. And, you know, like you mentioned before, if a person who is coming in and they're telling me, oh, I am, I've changed my nutrition. I've changed my physical activity. I'm getting better sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm not spending as much time on social media. You know, um, I'm doing all of these things. And then I'll say, well, you know, do you mind bringing your partner to the next visit? Because, you know, they're expressing some stress related to their relationship. And then it changes everything because like you said, all of a sudden they're like, uh, actually, actually. <laughs> and so then we find that we have maybe some behavioral goals that need to be, you know, maybe brought out of the dark and into the light yeah. so that we can really start to address those and talk about, you know, what is it that you are, um, you know, because we can get addicted to our coping styles. You know, for me, oh, yeah. one of the newest things during the pandemic was TikTok, and I'm just like scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Oh, yeah. And my husband is like, Hey, it's really late. Didn't you say you wanted to try to get better sleep? And I'm thinking, Yeah, but this is really fun and entertaining. This is making me happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, like, is your coping style helping you? Mm-hmm. You know, so to go back to the question, you know, I think a lot of doctors, maybe coming from the perspective of they are the sage Mm -hmm. on the stage rather than the guide on your side. And I definitely see doctors of behavioral health as more of the guide on your side perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that's how we can help physicians who are kind of in that place of ego. Mm -hmm. The doctor knows best to say, actually, the patient has sovereignty over their body Mm -hmm. and they have the ability to choose. And, And yes, if they don't take that medication, they may continue to have that symptom. And yes, if they don't do the treatment plan that you recommend, they may hasten their death. Mm-hmm. And yes, that is their choice. And you know, as long as a person understands or is able to make the choices that are best for them, then you know they go into it knowingly and willingly. Right. And we don't blame them for that. We right. we say that that's freedom of choice and, and freedom of health. Right. Right. Um, so I think you know, do your own research, but also be willing to bring your sources to the visit mm-hmm. with you. Um, so I'll give an example of that. When my dad, my dad recently um, had an abnormal EKG. So he had a, a foot issue. He went to an orthopedic surgeon. He was going to have surgery. The surgeon said, have you had a, a you know, primary care of an, an annual physical yeah. recently? He hadn't. So the surgeon did a great job mm-hmm. in referring him back to PCP for follow-up he had an EKG, the EKG was abnormal. So the PCP sent him to a cardiologist. The cardiologist ran some more tests and discovered what he thought was probably a blocked artery. Mm -hmm. So then he went in for an angiogram. The angiogram identified at least three 90% to hundred percent blocked arteries. So he had to stay in the hospital and then have open heart surgery and he ended up having a quadruple bypass when they went in, they found the fourth one, right? They did. Yeah. When they went into surgery and that's pretty typical, they might find, you know, they'll think like double, and then they end up doing a triple or a quadruple bypass. So after the quadruple bypass, he came home with 17 different types of medication and it was on my mom and myself as his caregivers, you know, to help ensure that Mm -hmm. he had the morning, the noon, the evening, and then the as needed medication. Mm -hmm. So we were, first of all, you know, released at a time that was very difficult for us to get to a pharmacy to get all the prescriptions filled. And there were some that he needed that day. Mm -hmm. Um, and the hospital didn't give us those meds and that's another practice and another system failure for most patients. Um, but as the DBH, I'm looking at these and I'm, I'm asking the cardiologist, well, hold on a second. You know, this medication is, you know, going to cause this other, you know, there, you know, I've looked up the medication and there are interactions here that we need to be aware of. And so I was trying to have that medic, that medication, you know, conversation with the home care nurse, the home care nurse did not have that information and like was there to care for my dad, but we had to go back to the cardiologist. So it was days before we got answers on a lot of those meds. And so, you know, just to go back to doing your own, you know, research, it, it is important. And I understand that a physician gets annoyed with a patient who Mm -hmm. has said, well, hold on a second. You've got a lot of drug interactions here that I need to understand Mm -hmm. because the physician is like, just take it. I gave you the prescription. Just take it. That happened to me. We've done the costs and balances. And I'm telling you that the benefits outweigh the costs. Yeah. The same thing happened to me after I had little Henry. Yeah. I, after I had Harper, they um, had put me on the pain mill, the pain pills, like the opioids or whatever. And 
um, like I could not even feed her. I was just like completely knocked out. And so they had saw that they put me on like basically ibuprofen, Tylenol, ibuprofen, Tylenol, which is hard on your liver, kidneys and stuff like that. If it's taken over a long time, but when it came to having Henry, I had pre-known basically all of that in my head that like, I could not be on anything strong. And Mm -hmm. they had put me on some stuff that when I came off of it, out of the C-section, I was itching like crazy coming off of the like withdrawal. Uh And then I had asked the nurse and said, I don't want any strong pain pills. I just want Tylenol and ibuprofen consistently. Mm -hmm. I will only need it for this many days. And my husband's a physical therapist. So he was also like, get up and move and we Mm got to keep you going. And like, Mm -hmm. not that, you know, no pain, some gain or paint, whatever that stain is. That's not where he was going with it. But he's like, the more you get moving, the more your body's going to get back to moving and things aren't going to like be so standstill and hurt and that kind of stuff. So he was really supportive there. But when I told the nurse that I didn't want that stuff and I only want to tell them and I'd be proven, she refused to put the order in mm-hmm. and she refused to listen to what I had to say. And so when it came time to take the Tylenol at that hour, mm-hmm. I had rung my call button or whatever to say like, Hey, it's my turn, like time mm-hmm. to take this. And I wasn't feeling pain, but I also knew like with pain management, it's important yep. to get on top of it mm-hmm. rather than fall behind it. Yep. And so when she came in, she's like, well, we don't have a prescription for it, but I do for whatever, you know, pain pills she had a prescription yeah. for her. And I had refused it and said, you need to call the doctor and mm-hmm. you need to tell them to give a prescription for the ibuprofen or Tylenol or whatever yeah. it was in the yeah. hospital. Yeah. And she refused it again. And so then she, we got to a point where my pain management was behind because mm-hmm. she wasn't putting the order in because she thought like what, how it just, yeah, that's not what I've seen other patients do. Yeah. And we ended up, you know, cause I have C-section I ended up staying there for a couple of days. And by the time we left, I was pretty much off of one of them. I can't remember which one, mm-hmm. it, you know, just a little pain, but not yeah. anything too horrible. Mm-hmm. And she ended up like actually writing me like a letter and said, like, I've never seen a patient advocate for themselves that way. I've never seen a patient like actually stick up for themselves mm-hmm. and then like it actually work. Yeah. And she's like, it kind of brought trust back that I should try to listen to what a patient's saying because wow, like it's their body. Ultimately. Mm-hmm. She's like, and I know the scientific stuff around it. I know the medical side of it, mm-hmm. but also too, at some point, like they get to have that's right a level of say in it. And so not that I'm changing the world one C-section at a time, but it was like, okay, it is important for us to advocate Absolutely. for ourselves that way. Well, and just to think about, you know, what hospitals do is pretty much a one size fits all uh-huh. approach. Especially in maternal ward. And in mm-hmm. um, post-op for, mm-hmm. you know, heart surgeries. Yeah. And, and so that's what was being given for my dad. And, you know, for me to be advocating for my dad was obviously a very brand new thing. Mm-hmm. And it made, you know, the nurses not so happy to see me when they came in. And some of the other ones were very happy to see me because yeah. they too believed that patients should have the knowledge that they need to make their own healthcare decisions yeah. in cooperation or in partnership with their yeah. providers. So um, again, I think that that gets to the point where, yeah. you know, we, we need DBHs to help, to help well, sort of like help those waters deal to stand up for themselves yes. too mm-hmm. and speak for themselves and see it from the other side as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that we are getting very close to our time here. I agree. Um, great conversation though. I can't wait to have more. I know. So why don't we save the other questions that came in from our team for the next episode? I agree. Let's do it. All right, my friend, thank you for taking the time to do ask a DVH and for bringing the idea up to begin with. High five. We should be like a public ask a DVH, like a public email for it. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think we talked about that. Yeah. So maybe we'll set that up. And if we uh, can get that set up, then I'll put it in the links and resources along with this episode. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us. 